The due date for Jessica's final project was quickly approaching. Yet her camera sat in its bag taunting her. Four years of art school had all boiled down to this final project. The assignment was to capture the unexpected in the everyday. Jessica, who now sorely regretted her choice, had chosen doorknobs as her focus. For a year, she had been taking artsy photos of all manners of doorknobs, some in color, black and white, close up, far away, out of focus and in motion. But there was nothing unexpected. She had hundreds of photos of doorknobs being doorknobs. There was no story here. And truth be told, there wasn't any art either. Frustrated by the lack of progress and the looming due date, she packed up her old station wagon and drove and drove and drove until school, the city, and her project were far behind her. As the sun began to drop and purple replaced the salmon-colored sky, she pulled into a local campsite on the edge of a state park. As the sun set, she headed out with her camera for a walk. Why hadn't she chosen nature as her topic? There was always unexpected things occurring in nature. Mushrooms growing in complex designs, trees pushing through rocks, faces and flowers, caves that look like flowing silk, or rock foundations shaped like hands or feet. But no, she had chosen doorknobs. As the sun blossomed over the hilly Montana countryside, Jessica also rose and headed back out on her odyssey. She found herself going west on Highway 278 and spilling into Bannock State Park, an old abandoned ghost town from the gold rush. This was as good a place as any to stop. The heat was so blistering, the soles of her shoes felt like they were sticking to the creaky old boardwalk. No one else was in the park. It was too hot, too dry and dusty, and the old buildings gave no relief from the stifling heat either. Out came her camera, and she began to snap uninspired shots of saloon handles, door knockers, and of course, endless doorknobs. Standing outside one of the derelict cabins, she fiddled with the camera. The exposure wasn't right. Every photo was either too hot, too cold, or simply unfocused. Suddenly, a gust of cool air enveloped her as she snapped the final shot of a brass doorknob set in a dry wooden door. All of a sudden, the air turned hot once again, not as though the wind blew away, but as though it had simply turned off, like the snap of a photo being taken. As Jessica stood there, alone on the boardwalk, she began to lazily flick through her various photos of door hardware. However, when she came to the final shot, her heart dropped cold sweat ran down her face and her hands began to shake. In the final photo, she could see her own reflection in the doorknob. But next to her stood a faceless little girl in an old timey dress. The unexpected in the everyday.
friends, it's Becca. For the past three years, the West London Witch team have been dedicated to bringing you the best supernatural stories at the highest studio quality. And by team, I mean me and my buddy, Danny. We do this work totally for free because we love it. We're proud of our content and appreciate the wonderful interactions we get to have with storytellers and listeners just like yourself. If you're enjoying the West London Witch, maybe consider joining our Patreon. It's a way to further engage with us and show your support for two creatives. If you're in a position to spare enough each month for us to grab a cup of coffee in between edits or add to the piggy bank for a new microphone, we would love to see you in our Patreon community. But I know times are tough. So if you're not in a position to join Patreon right now, that's okay. We aren't going anywhere. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch. For as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, you can gain full access to our coven, a space where we share behind the scenes stories, dive deeper into each episode, answer your questions, and have special little treats to thank you for sharing your love and kindness with your favorite little witch. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. Many years ago, my family took a trip to Beaverhead County in Montana, where we visited a true gold rush ghost town, Bannock. Bannock looks exactly like a set of an old Western movie a quintessential Wild West village frozen in time in the vast, remote Montana countryside. We visited the state park on a boiling hot August afternoon. The town was completely empty, not a single other visitor on the site. So you can imagine how alarming it was when my little sisters asked to play with the little girl who they had found crying in the historic Mead Hotel. From that moment on, I was fascinated by the state park. So I reached out to the ranger in charge and was thrilled when he connected me with Arliss. Arliss is the president of the Bannock Association and a tour guide for the park for over 17 years. Arliss has become the official collector of all the many ghost stories that visitors have experienced in the town. And she has come here today to share them with us. This town may have been deserted, but that does not mean that it is unoccupied. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch, Episode 51, Bannock Ghost Town. Bannock is a very, very special place. Uh, It it was the site of the first uh, big gold strike in Montana in 1862. There was a group of guys headed to the uh, gold fields in Idaho. And as they would, they were testing the waters along the way, and they came up with the first big strike just outside of what's now the town site of Bannock. It all began with five lucky guys. But... By the fall, 300 hopeful gold miners had descended on the area. And by the following July, over 3 
thousand prospectors had moved into the southwest corner of Montana, into the shimmery gold fields of Bannock. Uh, that was kind of the boom time of Bannock. Uh, the, the original miners were doing um, placer mining, which is looking for the loose gold using their pans and their sluice boxes and that. Later on, they uh, dug ditches for up to 25 miles to bring in water off of Horse Prairie, which is a, a big flat area up above Bannock. And they dug those ditches and the water would come down the hill and they would funnel it tighter and tighter and tighter until they could run it through a big iron nozzle called a, a little giant. And it took four or five guys on the end of this nozzle, aiming it at a hillside to wash the dirt away from the bench deposits up above. And then they would run those through their sluice boxes and things like that. Uh, later on, they went to uh, hard rock mining. Uh, so they're, they hard rock mined out there with the miles of tunnels underground for many, many years. Uh, the last mines like that were being run even into the early 50s, early 60s. Um, in between the, the bench deposit um, hydraulic mining and the hard rock mining, there was, uh, we had dredge boats. So they would take the little tiny grasshopper creek and they would dam it up to the size of a football field. And a dredge is a big flat bottom boat that had a boom out over the front that had buckets on it that were going down 30 or 40 feet to get to those deposits further down in the creek that you just can't get to as a single person. So the, the neat thing about Bannock Gold, 99.5% pure gold. If you get 90%, you're doing good. So we had extremely good gold there that everybody was looking for. And if you could get down another 100 feet, you could probably find gold today. From very early on, there were women and children in Bannock, but that doesn't mean it was civilized. It truly was the Wild West. There were shootings in the street, sex workers operating out of the saloon, lootings and highway robberies were common. And since Bannock was so remote, it was essentially a lawless land. I, I kind of attribute it to the oil fields today, like that when we get the booms in North Dakota and that, and these guys go and they're making great money, but they don't come home with it because they buy trucks and they go out and they party and they do all. It was the same thing with the miners there. They were making, they were spending that money as fast as they were making it. The city was founded in 1862 and quickly became a collection of homes, businesses such as breweries, hotels, bakeries, and workshops, a schoolhouse, and of course, a church. And it survived well into the 20th century. There was lots of uh, people living out there during the Depression. It was, a, it was a good place to be because it was cheap. There was work either there in Bannock or on the surrounding farms. And so we had a lot of people living out there. However, as World War II came to a close, it became evident that Bannock's practicality, feasibility, and productivity as a functioning town was coming to an end. It was no longer a prosperous city. 
It was largely abandoned and was quickly descending into wreck and ruin. And there was historic women in Dillon that said, we have got to preserve this place. It became the first territorial capital early on. They sent out uh, territorial governor, Sidney Edgerton was there. They held the first legislature there. So it, it was an important place. And so these ladies went, you know, we've got to do something. So they started up buying land and buildings and then they turned around and they sold those to the state for a dollar and said, make a state park out of it. These incredible forward-thinking women struck a deal with the state so the town could be preserved and maintained. There was only one stipulation. The town could not be commercialized. You won't find hotels, shops, cafes, or eateries at Bannock. It is the same today as when the last residents left. Virginia City and Nevada City has become that in Montana. It's a very touristy, it's great, it's fun. We're the ghost town. But Bannock is a ghost town in more than just one way. Throughout the years, there's been many ghostly stories. I've heard many, many stories, and I've been kind of the collector of the stories. <laughs> one of the most haunted places out there is the Hotel Mead. The Hotel Mead began as the town's first brick courthouse and soon grew into the county courthouse. After the courthouse moved to Dillon, the Hotel Mead sat empty for about nine years until an engineer, Dr. Mead, and his family bought the building, extended it out the back, and opened it as the Hotel Mead, which it has remained ever since. But that is considered that's the building you see when you see anything about Bannock and th there's one main ghost in there that everybody talks about everybody knows Dorothy um, Dorothy Dunn was 16 years old she lived out in Bannock in 1916 she and some friends went down maybe a quarter mile from Bannock they they were following the creek they it was a hot summer day they wanted to wade in the water. Well, they got down to where one of the um, old dredge ponds was, where the, it would go down 30 or 40 feet. Well, they were on the edge of that, and unfortunately, they slipped into that dredge pond. They didn't know how to swim in 1916. These girls were not, that wasn't considered ladylike, though they didn't know. Luckily, one of the boys on the ranches heard the screaming. He came down. He pulled out the other girls, but he couldn't get to Dorothy in time. So it was a few years later, not too long, but her best friend, Bertie, who had been in the swimming hole with her, was working in the hotel. And she started up a tall, steep back staircase in the back. She glanced up and here was Dorothy. Her friend waved at her and disappeared. Bertie told her mother that she had seen her friend on the stairwell, but refused to retell the story. She had been traumatized by the horrific drowning and the subsequent ghostly encounter. But ever since then, people report seeing a girl in the hotel. And Dorothy herself was a 16-year-old girl. She had short, dark, curly hair. We've got pictures of her. Everybody describes her as having a blue dress and long blonde hair. And I'm just thinking, maybe that's the way Dorothy really wanted to look in life. Who knows? 
but they do see that. And we were getting various reports of ages. But no, she's a little girl. No, she's a big girl. Well, come to find out, before Dorothy had passed away in the in the in the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, when they were doing the dredging, a little four year old named Velma, she fell off one of the dredge docks and she drowned. So we feel that both Dorothy and Velma are there together. It tends to be children who see Velma and Dorothy, and the experiences are hauntingly similar. A parent hears their small child chattering away in another room. When they go to investigate, the children proceed to introduce them to their new friend that the parent cannot see. They will ask to play ball with the nice little girl in the hotel or be found running around in a game of tag all by themselves. My own daughter, uh, during Bannock Days, which I think is unusual, we do a big event every July. Thousands of people come. And my sister was taking her through the through the hotel, up the stairs, down the hall, and down the back stairs. And she was four at the time, my daughter. And she said to my sister, look at that girl's pretty dress. Because she could see a girl sitting in a windowsill that got up and walked into one of the rooms. And my sister kept saying, there's nobody there, let's go. So my daughter swears that she saw Dorothy when she was four. Even though it's mainly children who see Velma and Dorothy, adults have also had experiences in the Hotel Mead that have been so terrifying, they have refused to ever go in it again. There was a tour guide before myself. He had a group of Boy Scouts there, and he was downstairs in the hotel showing some of the things downstairs. Some of the kids had ran up to to investigate couple older boys and a couple younger ones. But pretty soon, uh, the younger boys came screaming down the stairs and he, and he looked at everybody and said, go outside. And he stirred up to investigate. And he said, once he stirred up the big, fancy curving staircase, everything, the air got thicker, got heavier. He started down the hallway. There's one room in there that we call Dorothy's room. I don't know why that ever got Dorothy's room, but we've dubbed it that. That one of the older boys was standing there gripping the door frame. The other, he met the one older boy come down and just scared and he said, go outside with the other kids and calm them down. But he went down to the kid gripping this, the uh, door frame and said, what's wrong, what's wrong? And the kid wouldn't answer him. He finally shook him, got him loose from the door frame and got him downstairs and got him outside. And when the older boys calmed down, they said they started into that room and that one felt something just wham him right in the chest. And then that just froze him there. Uh, My theory that I always tell my tour people is 16-year-old girls don't want boys in their bedroom. Don't mess with it. (laughs) Another phenomenon that occurs regularly at Bannock is ghostly apparitions appearing in family photos. The park has a constantly growing collection of visitor photos with unexplainable images embedded in them. We had some ladies that had their picture taken on the front of the hotel. They had started in earlier. They opened the door. They got hit with a cold breeze and the smell of lilac. Didn't think anything about it except for there's not lilacs for miles. They didn't know that. Uh, They toured the hotel. They came back out. 
two of them stood on the uh, steps to get their picture taken, and the third one took the picture when they, they felt that breeze again and the smell of lilac. And when that picture was developed, they looked like a third person had their arms over those two ladies. But Dorothy is not only experienced inside the hotel, but has also kept visitors safe from the perils of the creek, for no one knows better than her how lethal it can be. I had one lady staying in the campground that is just a little ways down from the town site, and it's in between the town site and the dredge pond where Dorothy died. And she didn't know the story of Dorothy at that point because they had just set up camp. She went for a walk along the creek, and she heard this girl's voice say, stop, don't go any further, it's dangerous. And so she 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 looked around and, hello, and nobody answered. She turned around, went back to her campsite. Well, she was headed towards the dredge pond where Dorothy died. As Bannock is such a spiritually active place, it, of course, draws in paranormal investigators and mediums alike. One of the most interesting one was um, we had a group of paranormalists that wanted to take a, a night tour. And they came out during the day and they said, we don't want to know anything, nothing. So just let us walk around. They were feeling the buildings. They were getting the vibes, I guess. One lady came back. She said, I started up the hotel or the staircase in the hotel and the air got heavier. It got wetter. She started down the hallway. She said, all of a sudden I felt dripping wet and I tipped my head back, and it felt like air bubbles going out of my mouth. I said, now tell me the story. So I told her about Dorothy Dead. Later that evening, the manager tried to trick the group by taking them to an empty patch of land and asked them if anything had ever occurred there. And they all looked at each other for a minute, and they said, we don't know. It was god-awful. We're out of here. And they walked away from him. Well, it was the site of a cabin where one guy... Joe Pisanthia, he was a Mexican guy there. The other guys, for whatever reason, were mad at him for stealing gold or something. They shot him, uh, got him, they shot a cannon into the cabin to get him running out. They shot him a hundred times. They hung him. They threw, even though he was dead, they threw him back on the cabin and they burned that cabin down to the ground. And that's that area. And you have no, there's no way of knowing there was ever a cabin there. So they were picking up those bad vibes for that area. As cool as it is for mediums and paranormal investigators to get vibes and have experiences, it's the regular tourists who report back to our list that I find really special. They didn't come looking for ghosts, but still they encountered them. Another interesting one with the hotels, I had a lady in the fall come down. She says, okay, who's in the hotel? I'm working in the visitor center. And she's like, who's in the hotel? I said, well, tell me what you saw. And she said, oh, you're not going to believe me. I said, yeah, just tell me. So she said she walked in the front door and in the side door over here, there was a girl. And she was in a beautiful blue ball gown which was a very detailed and had her hair all done up and all like this, which nobody ever gets that detail. Blue dress, blonde, long blonde hair. So she said, I talked to her, but not like I talked to you. It was in my mind. And I said, um, why are, 
why are you here? And she and Dorothy answered, so people will not forget. The hotel is a hotbed of activity, needless to say. It's full of unexplainable sounds, drafts, footsteps, and cold spots. Visitors feel touches and pulls to their clothes. They have felt like they were being pushed down the stairs. And of course, there are all of the physical sightings as well. However, the Hotel Mead is not the only structure in Bannock that is haunted. The historic schoolhouse also comes with its own library of ghost stories. Um, I had one guy rush down. He had just gotten to bed. He took a picture from the doorway because it's set up with desks and chalkboards and all that. And when he looked at his picture, there was the outline of a person standing in front of one of the chalkboards. And he showed me that picture. Um, we we have a picture that we didn't get a copy of that one, but we have a picture where some kids were out there playing and one was bending over a table. The other one was playing teachers, spanking that child. And they're encased in the glow that looks like a head on down to a skirt flowing out and an arm pointed at the chalkboard. And there's orbs throughout that picture. This photo is incredible. Head on over to the West London Witch Instagram to check out this haunting image. And when you do, keep in mind that it was taken with a traditional film camera. Another place that we get a lot of um, things happening is it's it's been dubbed the Crying Baby House. It's the Bassett House. There, That was a house in the early 1900s when we had to quarantine, as we all know now what that means. They would take people that had um, smallpox, diphtheria, influenza, that sort of thing, and that family would take care of them in there. And unfortunately, a lot of children died in that house. And ever since then, people report hearing babies cry on that end of town. And we've even had maintenance crew hear something or somebody will tell them, I heard a baby cry, you got to go look. And they go and look and no baby has ever been found left behind or anything crying there. It's not just what people hear at the crying baby house, but it's also what they smell and feel. I had uh, a group of tour tourists. Uh, There was a couple from Germany. He spoke very good English. She spoke to him in German, so I don't know how much she was understanding of what I was telling about the building. Well, I waited outside while the group went in to explore the crying baby house. She immediately came out, walked straight across the street, and her husband followed her and talked to her for a minute. He came back, he said, what's in that building that can make her sick? I said, mold, dust, (laughs) rodent droppings. There, You know, there's a number of things that could do that. He said when she walked in, she got hit with a sweet, sickly smell and thought she was going to throw up, so that's why she walked across the street. And I was talking to my assistant manager, Tom Lowe, after that. And he said, well, you know, they used to burn tar in that house because they felt the tar, breathing the tar would help the sickness. And he said, I wonder if she was channeling, channeling that. The town church is also a location of heightened activity and has its own wealth of stories and incredible evidence. The church, we've had a, a few interesting things there. Uh, we had one gentleman 
um, at Bannock Days, everybody wants to play in the church. It was just him and his guitar and a little dog. And a little boy had been tailing along with him all day. And there's a little platform up front. And the little boy was sitting on the platform listening to him sing. And and he did basically folk songs. But he thought, I'm in the church. I'm going to do, do a hymn. So he sung Amazing Grace. And everybody just got this wondrous look on their face. And he thought, oh, I'm doing really well and stuff. He got done. Now, the little boy was still tailing him, and one lady said, okay, where was the lady that was singing with you? And he went, there was no lady. Yeah, she was out the back door or something, wasn't she? <laughs> and he went, there's no lady singing with me. And the little boy said, yes, there was. I heard her too. It's common for people to be drawn to the church to hear the beautiful singing flowing from its doors, only to arrive to an empty building. But it's not all ghostly duets and haunted hymns in Bannock. For what would a Wild West town be without a rough-and-tumble saloon and a sketchy sheriff? We had um, a sheriff out there. This is our other most famous story out there. His name was Henry Plummer. Henry Plummer had been a gold miner some places. He had been a baker some places. He had been a sheriff some places. He had shot five people, but always in self-defense before he came to Bannock. One of those shootings ended him up in San Quentin, the famous jail off the coast of California. But somehow he got out of San Quentin. They don't know if he was friends with the governor and pulled strings or something, but he got out and he came back up to Montana and he was going to take a steamboat and go back east. Well, he fell in love with a young missionary girl at Sun River um, Indian farm. She had heard about the gold dingings at Bannock, and so he brought his wife and, and came down to Bannock. Well, they had one sheriff, and that sheriff had had run-ins with Henry Plummer, and he was afraid of him, and he tried to sneak up behind Henry and shoot him in the back. The bullet ended up in Henry's arm and actually ended up lodging in his wrist. The sheriff was so terrified of Henry Plummer that he left town. He was convinced that Henry would come after him and kill him in return. Henry Plummer was a 30-year-old man, very nice looking, very genteel, tipped the hat to the ladies. They knew he was a good shot and they went, well, we need a sheriff, how about you? Well, the legend is, and there are people that on both sides of the story, was he guilty, was he innocent? say that he um, he organized a band of road agents. These were guys that would rob and kill and plunder. He was sheriff both in Bannock and Virginia City, and they would work the roads for him. They feel he was marking wagons and things like that and telling the guys which wagons to rob and things like that. Other than the sheriff, Henry Plummer himself, and the state governor, there was really no other law enforcement no one to report the alleged corruption to. So the townsfolk took matters into their own hands. In 1863, a group of prospectors formed the Montana Vigilantes and hunted down Henry and his gang of road agents. One Sunday evening, the local Bible study was interrupted when the Vigilantes stormed the gathering and captured Henry Plummer and his deputies. They took Henry and his men directly to the gallows and hanged them that very night. 
Some say Henry was hanged for his involvement in organized crime. Others say the vigilantes wanted the sheriff gone so they could continue their illegal activity. Either way, it's a classic Wild West tale of outlaw justice. There are a lot of stories that Henry Plummer is still roaming around the town, frequenting the saloon and watching over his hidden gold. Activity in the area is mainly attributed to the former sheriff. We had the Ghost Adventurers crew, the TV show. They were there at Bannock. They did they did a uh, program on it. They also, they caught a picture of a face in the hotel. They caught some activity in the crying baby house. But they were out at the end, towards the end of the night, and they were all kind of wandering around, checking things out. And um, they caught the words five men and there was only four of them so their theory is the fifth one was henry Plummer. in a strange way it's kind of nice to think that the sheriff is still patrolling the streets of bannock for this once thriving boomtown really does belong to the ghosts now the goal for bannock has always been for it to be preserved and maintained so that for generations to come, visitors can come and explore, learn, and enjoy the ghost town. Today, it's a national historic landmark and a state park. This city will live on thanks to the industrious women who purchase the land, the park rangers who keep it safe, the tour guides who keep the stories alive, and of course, the ghosts who still call this town home. Arliss was kind enough to share with us a collection of incredible ghostly photos that tourists have taken over the years. Make sure you head to the West London Witch Instagram and Facebook to check them out. Let me know what you make of these incredible shots. And keep your eyes peeled for the little faceless girl in the doorknob. Our opening story today was based off of a very real Bannock experience. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and Merry Meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Miss Sinead Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us. <laughs>